Hell Pilots Plane Tales Flying the Red Flag The Korean War had been a successful period for the United States Air Force. These statistics from nearly 900 decisive combat engagements show that the American pilots in their high-performance World War II fighters and a new generation of jet fighters had dominated the Korean People's Air Force. By the end of the conflict, 792 MiG-15s and 108 other aircraft had been claimed by USAF Sabre pilots against a loss of 78 F-86s. Counterclaims by China, the Soviet Air Force and the Koreans paint a slightly different picture, but there's little doubt that the USAF pilots had an excellent kill ratio of around 10 to 1. In the 11-year period between the end of the Korean War and the Gulf of Tonkin incident that marked the build-up of US forces in Vietnam, it seemed that much of the knowledge and skills displayed then had been lost. Air Force strategy and doctrine remained committed to nuclear deterrence, and the air war was thought to be one that would be fought at long range with the new generation of missile-carrying fighters. Faith that had been so confidently placed in the new technology was soon proven to be misplaced as the early generation of missiles frequently failed and were often ineffective against the highly maneuverable opposition. The tactics of the MiG pilots had also changed. Instead of the direct confrontations that occurred in Korea, the North Vietnamese switched their tactics to ambush their enemy using ground radar controllers to set up high-speed hit-and-run attacks. Against an increasingly poor kill ratio, which during the final months of the vast Operation Rolling Thunder reached 1 to 1, with the loss of 22 USAF aircraft versus 20 MiG kills, it was obvious that something had to change within the world's most powerful air force. The initial response was to bring forward improvements to aircraft and missile systems, but it wasn't until the results of extensive post-war studies were digested that some within the air force realised better pilot training was really the answer. The Navy had already instigated their Top Gun training school and had reaped the benefit at a time the USAF was actually cutting down on air-to-air combat training because of the perceived risks. The Air Force's answer to Top Gun was to create the Fighter Weapons School at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. Within a cadre of young Vietnam veterans who had cut their teeth in combat over Hanoi were the Iron Majors. This new breed of fighter pilot wanted to instill a doctrine of air combat training that had been woefully lacking. At the start of the Vietnam War, the average flying experience for a combat pilot was over 1,000 hours. By the end, it was less than 250. In addition, for many, completion of their pilot training ended up with them in the back seat of a Phantom. Their frustration was palpable, and as often as not, the guy sitting in the front came from a single-seat fighter and didn't know how to properly utilise these young pilots in the back seat. And in some cases, they didn't want to learn. Things had to change.
1974, there was a large sign on the front of the 414th Fighter Weapons School at Nellis. The centerpiece of the sign was the famous bullseye patch that identified the building and the squadron as the Fighter Weapons School, or simply Weapons School as it was usually called. Under the large patch, an imposing statement proclaimed, Home of the World's Greatest Fighter Pilots. Although that claim would have been challenged by fighter pilots around the world, it marked a level of brash self-assurance that ran through the school. The USAF had been knocked back by its losses in Vietnam, but now there was a new attitude that instilled confidence into the latest generation of fighter pilots. Competition for places at the school was fierce, as only one or two slots were allocated to each wing per year. The syllabus consisted of both classroom and flight instruction on every weapon and every weapon system used on their aircraft, and study of these systems was both detailed and fast-paced. The flying missions introduced every capability of their aircraft. Intercepts, dogfights, nuclear weapons delivery, precision-guided weapons, conventional weapons delivery, and tactical considerations for every phase of flight. Standards were incredibly high, and students often observed that every ride seemed like a check ride. On graduation from the four-month course, they were expert in every aspect of operating their aircraft and when they went back to their home units, they became squadron weapons officers, the people all aviators turned to for expert advice on everything from how to fly the best turn to how to compute the length of a bomb stick. The school went through its early share of problems when instructors seemed more interested in making the course of rite of passage with students being harassed and hazed rather than instructed. The arrival of more enlightened officers, such as Major Larry Keith, resulted in the immediate firing of two senior prima donnas, and before long the home of the world's greatest fighter pilot sign was quietly removed and never replaced. The training syllabus became more objective-based, relying less on subjective opinion, and tactics were honed to meet the threats of the day and not to fight wars that had gone before. When instructors initially tried to get detailed intelligence about Soviet threats, they were told the information was need to know, and it took intervention by Nellis's commanding general staff to get past the intelligence organization's front doors. Once achieved, though, they were able to lecture about the capabilities of Soviet equipment, but live training was a different matter. The school well understood the benefits of dissimilar combat training, but they wanted something more, an opponent that mimicked the performance, capabilities and tactics of their adversaries. They had the enemy aircraft data to work from. Operations Have Donut and Have Drill ensured that they had the details of actual dissimilar combat missions flown against enemy aircraft, such as the MiG-17, the MiG-21 and the MiG-23, all of which had been captured from Soviet forces after various defections. The story of one is in my tale, the MiG-007. With that information, plus detailed debriefs from the defectors, 
signals intelligence and human intelligence, the school could train their instructors to copy Soviet aircraft and tactics. It would have been ideal to have acquired an entire squadron of MiGs to fly against Air Force fighters, but comparisons with their own aircraft show that the T-38 and later the Northrop F-5 would make an excellent choice for an aggressor squadron, playing the part of the MiGs. The 64th and 65th aggressor squadrons were formed at Nellis, with other units based in the United Kingdom and the Philippines. The concept was straightforward. Aggressor pilots would deploy with a small number of jets to a base where they would fly against a unit's fighters at whatever skill level the local commander wanted. The most basic mission was a one-on-one, but the aggressors, who had undergone an extremely rigorous 40-mission training program, were prepared to fly in much larger scenarios. During the missions, the aggressors flew enemy tactics they knew the Soviets used. They even tried to think like Ivan. When they were not flying, they taught academic classes on Soviet weapons, training and tactics. Of course, of great interest was the one that described the daily life of a Soviet fighter pilot, from how much or how little he flew to how much vodka he drank. A lot. Colonel Richard Souter had been one of the Iron Majors, who had done so much to change the Air Force's attitude to air combat training. He now became a driving force at Nellis, challenging the commander of the Tactical Air Command to offer realistic combat missions to the Air Force pilots. One of the post-Vietnam War assessments was Project Red Baron II, which showed that a pilot's chances of survival increased dramatically if they got through their first ten missions successfully. As a result, if the crews could experience these 10 missions in a training environment, they would have measurably better chances in actual combat. Souter successfully argued that this could be achieved safely and promised results. With two aggressor squadrons to fight against, they could provide the quality of training that would bring the combat scenarios as close as possible to reality. The ranges to the north of Nellis were large but poorly equipped, with only a few targets that were mainly piles of old oil drums. What he needed to create required action in a raft of departments. Operations, maintenance, budgets, plans, intelligence, research and development, range creation, test programs, weapons development, tactics and flight safety. He had the energy, organisational and persuasive skills to bring all this together, particularly since he believed that participation should not result in a grading of any kind, an anathema to the Air Force at the time. He envisioned a large operational missions, flown in big strike packages using live ordnance on the Nellis Ranges, which would be equipped with Soviet-style integrated air defence systems, fighters and ground-aware missiles. Debriefs would be aided by instrumented assessments and feedback, and the inclusion of other groups from Army Air Defence and Naval Aviation Strategic Air Command would be encouraged. Establishing this exercise, which would have to be funded from multiple budgets, 
all of which were under pressure, was a Herculean task, but one that Souter proved equal to. He needed to persuade people to give up electronic threat simulators and target hulks so that the range area could be adequately provisioned, as well as convincing senior staff of other services to support the concept. He sold it as an opportunity to bring entire strike packages, tankers, electronic warfare aircraft, bombers, fighters, reconnaissance aircraft and search and rescue helicopters up against a realistic enemy that operated advanced radar systems, integrated missiles and AAA and the aggressors flying dissimilar fighters using Soviet tactics. It would test the tactics that crews were planning to use in a war in Europe and would force them to plan and execute large combined missions whilst dealing with the inherent fog of war and a well-organised enemy force. Each exercise would consist of core units of blue forces that would be thrown into a systematic process of increasingly difficult scenarios that would bring them up to full capability. The schedule included visits to Nellis's intelligence centre to examine captured Soviet equipment, briefings on the equipment, capabilities, limitations and the Soviet tactics for using it. They would fly over an electronics warfare range where the crews would practice using their electronic countermeasures equipment against actual Soviet tracking and missile radars. Their warm-up missions consisted of one- and two-ship air-to-air sorties against the aggressors before moving into fully integrated large-scale attack missions against targets such as airfields, missile sites, vehicle convoys and tanks, all defended by a red force of anti-aircraft artillery, surface-to-air missiles, electronic jamming equipment and the aggressors. The missions would use reports and videos from the Red Forces to analyse results so that the blue side could learn exactly what they'd done correctly and what needed work. Suter met a lot of pushback, particularly from those concerned about accident rates, but he had considered this aspect as well, since the video and radar monitoring he was going to use would also flag up infractions of safety margins. Having said that, eyebrows were raised when it was discovered that there would effectively be no low-flying restrictions, and SAM sites would actually fire missiles into the air, albeit smoke-generating ballistic rockets that were frangible if hit. The first red flag went ahead against 24 Phantoms from the 49th Tactical Fighter Wing at Holloman. They were joined by reconnaissance aircraft, wild weasels, forward air controllers and search and rescue helicopters. This was like no exercise they'd ever been on before. There was real-time comms jamming, missiles were being fired up at them, their radars were being jammed and they were being attacked by the aggressors. It was as realistic as war could be. Helicopters even took exercise-downed aircrew into the desert so that they would have to practice survival procedures and then take part in fully-fledged search and rescue operations. 
The blue side initially showed an alarming loss rate to the red aggressors, but the learning curve was apparent and the comments from the crews told its own story. The best training environment I've ever encountered. Outstanding training. The most realistic since actual combat. The success of Red Flag generated enormous excitement and soon Red Flag 2 is being organised. Nowadays there are four to six Red Flag exercises every year at Nellis and four more in Alaska at Eelson Air Force Base. In addition to a Canadian Maple Flag and ten Green Flags for close air support missions with the Army. In a 12-month period, more than 11,000 aircrew in 750 aircraft from 250 different units fly more than 21,000 flight hours, with thousands more of support and maintenance personnel being trained. Many countries friendly to the United States are invited to attend, such as Australia, Belgium, Chile, Denmark, Egypt, Israel, Finland, France, Germany, Japan, New Zealand, Turkey, Poland and of course the United Kingdom. All told, 35 different countries have participated. Although the early accident records show that in Red Flag's first two years, eight aircraft were lost, with experience, the accident rate came down and is now generally lower than that of the Air Force as a whole. The success of Red Flag is perhaps showcased by the story of a pilot returning from a combat mission over Iraq. As he walked in, he was heard to say, That was almost as intense as Red Flag. If you enjoyed the story, then perhaps you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.